This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. My name is Roland Shu. I'm the Assistant Director of the Forum on Contemporary Europe, and it's my pleasure to welcome you to our event today with Ambassador Borja Jungren. Uh, I give thanks to the uh, um, APARC as well as the Duehua Foundation. Uh, John Cam is one of our sort of deus ex machina, um, bringing together uh, uh, top talent from Europe on Asian affairs to the Forum and to APARC. It's one of our first collaborations between our two programs, and it's uh, a, a great pleasure, and I hope we'll be able to do more together. I'll just have very brief comments, because I know we're here to, to hear from Ambassador Jungren. He's one of the rare individuals who has and continues to combine outstanding achievement in academic and diplomatic arenas. In the academic arena, Ambassador Jungren earned his advanced and uh, doctorate degrees at Swedish and American universities. He has held numerous positions on international scholarly advisory boards, including the chairman of the board of directors of the Nordic Institute of A for Asia Studies, member of the board of the Center of East and Southeast Asian Studies at the University of Lund, member of the board of the Cambodia Development Research Institute, member of the steering committee of the Swedish Academy of Advanced Asia Pacific Studies, and this I believe is an ongoing appointment. He has held research positions as visiting scholar at Harvard's Institute for International Development, scholar in residence at the Rockefeller Center in Bellagio, Italy in the summer, and I can imagine that was an arduous assignment <laughs> overlooking Lake Como, diplomat in residence, research school of the Pacific and Asian Studies at the Australian National Cur uh, University. He currently holds two positions, senior advisor, China Economic Research Center, Stockholm School of Economics, and senior fellow at Harvard's uh, Asia Center. In the diplomatic arena, he has a long and distinguished career in Sweden's diplomatic corps, including head development cooperation office in the Swedish Embassy in Bangladesh, charge d'affaires and head of the development cooperation office at the Swedish Embassy in Laos, head of the development cooperation office of the Swedish Embassy in Tanzania, Deputy Director General of the Swedish International Development Authority and Head of the Department for Asia and the Middle East, the Swedish Ambassador to Vietnam, Coordinator Swedish Asia Strategy Project for the Ministry for Foreign Affairs, Deputy De Director General and Head of the De Department for Asia and the Pacific at the Ministry for Foreign Affairs. Most recently, most notably, he served as Sweden's Ambassador to China from 2002 to 2006, and currently he is Ambassador for the Asian Department at Sweden's Ministry for Foreign Affairs. His list of publications as well, too lengthy to list in its entirety here, testifies to his achievement combining his research and policy experience. He's published numerous articles in Swedish, Vietnamese, and Chinese newspapers, edited volumes, magazines, and journals on Asia and different reform and development issues. I note two of his many scholarly book-length publications and articles which are surely of interest to our audience here today. His edited volume, The Challenge of Reform in Indochina, published by Harvard University Press, and two articles, Economic Reform, Democracy and Human Security in Vietnam, in the edited volume by Matsume and Chen on Common Security in Asia, New Concepts of Human Security as well as China, Global Ascent and Domestic Dilemmas in the edited volume by Falman and Loden 
on China's development and the global role. <clears throat> For his talk today, Dr. Lundgren describes his talk as views on China and Chinese reforms in the past three decades. I'm particularly interested in this point uh, coming from a personal point of view, uh, having visited China for the first time for a family reunion in 1973, hot on the heels of Nixon's first visit, uh, and uh, a hiatus until my recent return uh, this past year, uh, two months ago, for a second visit. The difference was uh, dramatic, striking in the development of material and human capital. But uh, when the uh, family conversation turned to stories of the political repercussions of our visit in 1973, there was a noticeable chill on the topic and the conversation. So in that sense, I think your, your thought that there is uh, uh, much, to, much that is new and much that remains a constant is, is quite apt and, and topical. Uh, please join me in welcoming Ambassador Junggren. Thank you very much, Roland, and thank you for the invitation. It's a very great pleasure and honor for me to, to be here. I'd like to thank the Forum and the Schoenstein Center, and of course also my old friend John Camp from the Duha Foundation, who is doing wonderful work on, on human rights in China. <coughs> um, if, you, if there was anything that was the common denominator in what I've been doing, over the last 40 years since I was visiting here, 1966 I recall, is that I've been dealing with Asia in, in one way or the other. Um, and I think it's just uh, what you call coincidence and very good luck that, uh, that, that I got this idea into my head uh, as a young a student that Asia should be my sort of theme. And I, it's going to preoccupy me as long as I breathe, I, I think. <coughs> uh, and for the last four years I've been until last year I've been then working in, in China, and that's the topic for today. As you can imagine, uh, spending four years in China uh, right now is, is quite fascinating and actually quite, uh, quite dramatic in the sense that the way China is changing uh, is, so, is so rapid and so physical that you sense it while you, while you live there. Uh, in those four years, uh, China's GDP grew by by 50%, just four years. And uh, China's exports more than doubled in just four years. You can, you can very clearly see how a middle class is emerging. Uh, and you can see uh, it's very much a matter of cement and, and uh, iron rods and so forth, because half of all the, the apartment buildings erected in, in the world today are, are built in China. And I used to learn from, from Volvo and Saab, keen to sell their vehicles, that they build three uh, times the, the length of extension of Sweden in China, of highway in one year. And as you know, Sweden is a very tall country. It means, means more than 4,000 miles of highway. So, uh, it's in many ways very physical. Also, I must confess, when I got there, I thought that they are very preoccupied now with their own reforms with the modernization, as they call it, to, to reach Chao Kang, the notion of, of, a, of a moderately well of society to be reached by the first phase by 2020. So I had not expected, I must confess, that China would 
expand its role, be capable of expanding its role internationally, the way they have done in the last five years. For example, if you take China's presence in, in Africa. <coughs> Same time, and many scholars say that even though this is happening, the leadership is primarily preoccupied with internal problems. It's a very common notion. Uh, all this, the, uh, the very transformation, the social unrest, the so-called mass incidents, 87,000 in, in, in 2005, according to official figures released by the Ministry of Public Security. We have not seen any figure for 2006, and I might never appear. Also, of course, the social gaps, and I come back to that. And of course, also how to how to um, cope um, with the, the, with reforming the, the political system. I think the leadership is fully aware that they cannot just freeze it, but they also want to maintain it. <coughs> One thing that was very striking to me, um, and even more since I left, was as I've been doing, uh, I'm busy working on a book on China called China, the drama of our time. And I've chosen that title because I think drama can refer both to these the economic growth kind of things and living standard, but also to things like climate change. And I think I must say I think that as I have been working on that now, I think that this question of of uh, of, uh, of the nature of of the Chinese growth model and his extreme dependence on coal is uh, a, a very very serious issue. I come back to that. But to work in in uh, in China as a Swedish uh, diplomat is is. Uh, is a great privilege in, in many ways. Um, the relations are good. I wouldn't say intimate, but, but comprehensive, and increasingly comprehensive. One thing that you will hear, I have never called on anybody in China without finding that they, in their brief, has a sentence about the fact that Sweden was the first Western country to establish diplomatic relations uh, with PRC in May of 1950. This was not done, as maybe people may think, uh, uh, because of ideology. It was just that the Swedish government found that that uh, the the the, the uh, new government in Beijing was, was was in power, and we should deal with uh, the existing government. Actually, the intention was to do exactly what the Brits intended to do, but the Brits never did what they said they were going to do. And then you had the Korean War and so forth. So we, Finland, and a few other countries. Established relations in 1950, while it took much longer for many other countries due to different developments. Anyhow, it's a, it's a, it's a, you, you, you never, there's never an occasion when that is not stressed by, by the Chinese side. Today, China is the Sweden's biggest market in Asia, bigger than Japan since three years back. But actually, I must confess also that even though China is, China's imports are growing by 20% a year, our export is not growing at all. So it's a concern. We have also, a huge trade deficit. The deficit is not a big concern in itself because our global uh, trade balance is positive. But uh, one factor is that so many Swedish companies are getting established in China, the major ones, like Ericsson, for example, the telecom company, or ABB, which we like to call Swedish because they're all, they're all uh, global, uh, but they have um, at least 25 factories today in China, as modern as any factory in Sweden. And that is true for for all the major, major companies for which Sweden is known. IKEA, for example, I'm sure you have an IKEA somewhere <coughs> on the coast here. <coughs> so that is one reason why we don't sell more, that we have all these companies present there. Uh, one field where I saw very rapid development was in, when it comes to uh, cooperation in the field of science and technology. 
when I arrived, there were some 50 agreements between Swedish universities and Chinese universities, often, you know, specific department. Nowadays, 125 or so. Some are just a piece of paper, but some are very significant, like Karolinska, uh, the, the uh, University of Stockholm, awarding the Nobel Prize in Medicine, as an example. It was also a very hectic time, because if you work as ambassador, one thing it was, which is a real, uh, with a lot of fun, is that if you work in a country where there's a lot of action, a lot of visits, then you, you get to know your own country very much more deeply than before, because you, one day you have a labor union leader, next day you have a professor, next day you have a human rights person, next day you have an executive from a business corporation, and so forth, and you try to, to be the broker. And that was it's very exciting, I must say. Uh, my biggest task in that sense was uh, to organize a state visit by the Swedish king and queen in the summer of 2006. Uh, a state visit to China in itself can, can be a rather marginal event. There are so many. Uh, it can be like a, a <coughs> fly on the wall. <coughs> uh, but in this case, we combined it with a, a, a visit of a, a full-size replica of a ship, a merchant ship. Uh, built in, that sa sailed to uh, Canton in 1740. So <coughs> some people, some enthusiasts in Sweden got the idea because it was rescued from the bottom of, of the sea and they decided to build an absolute replica of this ship. And, and, and it sailed uh, to Canton, back to Canton, Guangzhou, and the king and queen were on board when it arrived. And I must say it was a tremendous public relations success. I think uh, because also it reminded, uh, I think the Chinese saw in this a very significant gesture of friendship. And you don't build such a ship, you don't, you don't sail like that if you don't have sort of long-term intentions. So it was a, a wonderful occasion. And actually, Guangzhou invested a few hundred, uh, well, if you take dollars, uh, maybe 40 million US dollars in, in, um, in making the whole city uh, more attractive as a tourist site. You know, different historical sites were developed, temples and so forth. It was quite, quite an experience. And I was... I was <coughs> I, I, I had never been as exhausted as ever that after that visit, but it was a, that was really nice. And last year we also re received, a, no, this year we also received a Wintau, President Wintau in Sweden, uh, the first state visit to Sweden. So these were, were very, very, <coughs> for, for me, very, very interesting experience. Um, the, our relationship uh, also involves um, com complicated dimensions. For example, we have a Sweden is very known for its uh, commitment to human rights, and human rights is a fundamental part of our foreign policy, and I think that we are also a very credible country when it comes to human rights. Uh, and we have a, this week actually we have human rights talks, bilateral talks in, in, in Beijing. Uh, in recent years, China has been l less and less happy about this human rights dialogue. They have gone down, John told me, from nine to four, but in our case we call it uh, talks and we choose a subject and we don't, we don't hand over a list of, of political prisoners. We don't make it such an occasion because they, nowadays they sort of refuse, almost refuse to receive this list. There have been complications in recently with a number of stuff, dialogues, including the German one due, due to Dalai Lama. <coughs> um, Sweden is also a member of the EU, of course, since, not since the foundation, but since uh, 95. And the EU dimension is a very important part of the the Swedish relation to China today. And uh, actually, there has just been a summit between uh, the EU and uh, the Chinese leaders, Wen Yabao, uh, during the last few days. This is a very comprehensive relationship. Um, 
it is uh, it's a strategic partnership, actually. China likes to enter into such partnerships with countries and institutions, <coughs> and that is the case also with the EU since uh, four years back. Ours, I would say, is a bit peculiar because we have a strategic partnership, but Sweden also, uh, sorry, the EU also has an arms embargo uh, against uh, China since '89. So this combination of a partnership and an arms embargo is, is somewhat fascinating. Um, and we also have a, a, a human rights dialogue every, every uh, twice per year under every presidency. And recently they've been complicated, um, the seminar part, by, by China not accepting uh, the presence of certain NGOs that have been uh, chosen from the European side. Um, the most complicated issue right now in that relationship is actually on the trade side. Because like in the case of, of the, the US, but more, more, more recently, the trade deficit has become very huge. I think it will, in the case of the US, it's more than 200 billion US dollars this year. In the case of the EU, it's 150 or so. So it's, um, it's huge. And it's uh, within the EU, as you, as you know, we have 27 countries of different views. Some are more protectionist uh, by nature, in a way, like the southern European countries. So some, like Sweden, we are very committed to, to free trade. We believe very strongly in free trade as a generator of growth and development. So we want China to open up, we don't want to Europe to close. And there was an, ag uh, an agreement entered into the other day in Beijing to set up a working group to look at this and also the, the currency issue. We have not been so, we have said that the currency is undervalued but not as strongly as the US. But now since the dollar is falling and, so, and since the yuan is pegged more or less to the dollar, uh, we, we are getting the, the euro becomes stronger and stronger that hits European companies. So it's becoming, it's, it's becoming more of a concern of ours. <coughs> if you, I've been wondering, <coughs> uh, if, you, um, if you would look at our time, let's say some 30 years from now, historians for example, what would you consider to be the, the sort of salient th things happening in our time? That is sort of really changing the way the, the word uh, looks. Well, I'm sure that some of you will think of, of climate change, and you may think of the, of the World Wide Web and so forth. And some people mention nanotechnology. I don't know anything about that, but it sounds fascinating. Uh, but I would be pretty convinced that, that China's re-emergence is probably the most important thing happening in our time, if you look back in our time. I would think so because of, the, of its magnitude. And um, okay, it's, it's not, in a sense, it's not only China's, it's the emerging economies, like India and so forth. The way they, they the, the structure of the global economy has not changed as much as, do, as it's doing right now since the Industrial Revolution. And because, because China is the, the country. If you take world growth in world trade uh, since 1990, China has generated 29% of, 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 that, of that growth. And you know, these are uh, common facts, but still, as you know, China is today the third largest economy in the world. And if you make a price parity purchasing power adjustment, the second largest economy in, in the world. Income per capita this year, I think, uh, nominally, will be 2,400 US dollars. So it's still low. But also, as I mentioned, exports have been growing much, more f much faster than GDP all, of all these years, and particularly the last many years. So last this year, China is becoming the second largest export in the world. In 78, the trade, foreign trade total was 20 billion 
to this year, exports will be more than 1,200 billion. So it's a remarkable uh, change. And the whole structure, of course, the Chinese economy is changing. Then you, people say, yes, China today is the industrial workflow of the world. Toys and clothing, garments, uh, shoes, and what have you, and uh, different electronic uh, gadgets. It's all true, but it's not the whole truth. I think that uh, what is happening is it's, it's huge again. Uh, China is, is uh, because you, if you t think, think in terms of uh, in, 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 the, in uh, the theory of development economics, there are stages and you move from one to the other, so what you climb like a ladder. China is sort of all over that ladder uh, at the same time. And I think thanks to the way that uh, globalization has been utilized by, by China, we used to be so close before, now they have really uh, utilized the opportunities uh, skillfully. And one example, of course, is the auto industry. Uh, did you know that uh, last year they manufactured more vehicles in China than in Japan? Seven million. Then I, one professor told me, look, you have not understood anything. They are not making any cars. They are just assembling things. They, ha they, they have no auto industry, like Sweden or the US. But when do you get an auto industry? How, uh, has, has Korea an auto industry? Certainly. So I think it's just that we have not understood fully. Uh, what is happening. Uh, of course, it's true that some, so many of them are joint ventures. The, the biggest one used to be Volkswagen, now actually GM. GM is doing much better in China uh, than in the US. Uh, but there are also many uh, Chinese brands and they start to export uh, some of them, cherry and so forth. You will see more of that, I'm sure. Also, the telecom industry, which is a fairly advanced industry. Uh, the, the biggest competitor that, that, that Ericsson, our company in Sweden, is facing is Huawei doing very well, and also when it comes to 3G, the new technology, that the third generation of technology. So, uh, and, and one extension of that is also that China is developing its R&D capacity quite very rapidly. Today it's roughly 1.5% of GDP, but it will be 25 by 2020. Sweden is at 4%, we are second highest in the world, traditionally. Depends also on how you define this. But China has a very long-term R&D policy. And they also stress very much now they want to develop an innovative capacity. And they also say that they want to have more indigenous innovations. There is a nationalistic little twist also uh, recently that you can, can notice. But one definite effect of all this is that China has, has gotten integrated into the global economy in a very rapid uh, way. And there is also then an interdependence. And I think that some people talk about security and China emerging as a big power, they don't seem to pay any attention to this, or they don't think that it matters. But I think it matters that here you see a horizontal integration um, between nations in the global economy. If you take Soviet Union, it was a vertical nuclear power, having a very poor economic foundation. China is a horizontal power, deeply integrated, dependent on the world economy. If we still become a major power in, in in the, in the senses that, that we know major power, but still, I think it matters still. Um, as a consequence of this development, income per capita has increased nine times since 1978. And poverty has been reduced by 400 million people. 400 million. Today, roughly 10% below $1 a day in China. Even though I have seen that recently there is a discussion about that you know, when you PPP, when you adjust, 
to, have to um, measure in terms of purchasing power parity to be able to compare countries, not, not only using nominal GDPs. The, the converter for China has been pretty high, more than, more than three. And now some uh, economists are saying this is too high. Maybe you saw articles recently about this. Uh, so there's a little discussion. But even if that would be true, China has still grown by 10% a year, the, the economy, since 78. And China has still reduced the number of people under, in poverty by 400 million. So it doesn't diminish that, but it, it, it makes the, the PPP-adjusted economy smaller than, than some people have suggested. One thing that is very strikingly, of course, it, uh, is that China has gone from being so equitable. Even, though, even during Mao, the rural, uh, rural China was equitable. Urban China was equitable, but there was a wide gap between the two. Now that gap is 3.7 times between urban and rural. Uh, but what has happened is that you have gotten a society with what we may call aggregated inequalities. I don't know whether that is, whether I'll try to explain what I mean. I mean aggregated in the sense that you have one equality on top of the other, six layers. Or you, can, you can add more, but I'm choosing six. One is income, another one is wealth, the third one is access to healthcare, fourth one is access to education, a fifth one is exposure to risk of different kinds, and the sixth one is gender. And if you, if you are a poor woman, you might be at the bottom of the whole thing. Um, if you look at income, <coughs> um, the Gini coefficient, the way that you measure income distribution today for China, is there are different views on this also. But 0 0.47 is, is the figure that I think you'll find if you look at the UNDP and World Bank. Uh, if, yeah, that's the figure. ADB, the Asia Bank, has that figure in its latest publication also. So somewhere around 0 0.47. As you know, the lower the more uh, uh, equal. The whole Nordic group of countries is around below 0 0.3. We are among the most uh, egalitarian countries in the world. Um, some people think that China is now the worst case around. It's not the truth. If you, um, the, 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 among the big countries, Brazil has the, has the worst figure, if you now consider inequality something negative, the way I do at least. Uh, but uh, 0.6 roughly <laughs> is the figure compared to 0 0.47. And, and amazingly, the worst figures are African countries, tiny African countries, Lesotho, Swaziland, uh, um, and Namibia, and a few others. They are around 0 0.7. Not much attention paid to that, but it's a fact. When it comes to wealth distribution, wealth distribution, we don't know much, of course. It's impossible. Nobody in China will tell about his wealth. But the figures that we see in uh, the most recognized publication I know, the Human Development Report that was produced by, jointly by China and UNDP two years ago, puts the, the wealth Gini at 0 0.55. So its wealth distribution is more skewed. Um, and it, I'm sure that the real figure is, is higher than that. When it comes to healthcare, first you may say, you must, before you talk about healthcare, you must talk about health maybe. And then you must recognize that that um, life expectancy went up very, very fast during uh, Mao Zedong's era, from 40 to 60 years. And now it is at 72.5. It's a, not bad. It's, of course, it, it has not increased as rapidly as it could, but it's been inclining all the time. Uh, and also when you come look at other indicators, like infant mortality, child mortality under five, it's 70, 27 per thousand, which is a decent figure. Vietnam is quite a bit better, actually, even though poorer. 
19 per thousand. Um, but you, these indicators are uh, look uh, they look uh, quite okay when it comes to health. But still, access to health is very inequitable. Now you have everything from the best over-equipped hospitals in the cities. This very strong focus on urban uh, healthcare and hospitals. If you are peasant in rural China, it's changing now. They're introducing what they call a cooperative health insurance system, very uh, try to cover the country. But you may very be, well, as a peasant, come to a hospital and be told that, well, you have to undergo surgery because 10,000 MMB, you have to pay in advance, uh, so you have to borrow money. It's the most common reason why people end up in deeper poverty. It's, it's a disease within the family. Then you are supposed to be reimbursed, but the reimbursement is 30 to 40 percent. So it, it's still, you will still have to pay more than one year's income. Uh, and, and this, of course, I'm and China is spending very little on, uh, on health um, um, over its budget. 1.5% of GDP is a low figure compared globally. It's increasing now, I, I stress. And it's not only a question of money only, it's also a question of the whole administrative system is poor. Education is a similar story. Um, in the case of healthcare, more than 50% of health expenditure comes from your own purse. Also in case of ed education, a very high share, not that high, comes from the, the purse. And you know, you have everything from universities, which in some respects are among the are better in the world, to schools in rural China where the teacher doesn't get paid and so forth. But now there is a decision by the government that every school teacher should get paid and no child should leave the school before uh, having completed ninth grade. That there is a commitment, but it's not yet uh, realized. And um, then we have, as I said, exposure to risk. Of course, you have some, if you are, you, Let's say you are a migrant worker. There are between, depending on the, on the definition. I used to say that were 140 million migrant workers in China, but some people are using a higher figure, 200 million, and they claim that that is also a figure that uh, is, is in the government books. It, it must depend on definition, because you can you are a migrant worker the moment you don't work where you are registered, where you have your hoku, but you must still work in in a rural setting. Whereas as a temporary farm laborer or what have you at a small coal mine and, you, and, and be a migrant worker. But normally you talk, talk more about people working about 25 million or so in Guangdong and that kind of, uh, of people. But of course, they, they want to work there rather than being at home. Um, at, at home, they would, uh, they would just, just be stagnant maybe in that village. Now they have an opportunity, they take the chance, they go, get on a train, they, they can go anywhere today and find a job. But they have no other rights than trying to get a job for healthcare, education for their children. It is now under discussion. And there are examples of migrant ch uh, the children, migrant workers, now get getting into regular school in Beijing. But, and of course, most people don't have their kids there. They are back home with grandparents, which is also a sad uh, fact. Uh, but um, again, this is, there is a discussion on this now. And I think the party agrees that this cannot, cannot you have to recognize that urban, that migrant people, they are really urban people. You have, uh, statistically, you have 40% of, of the Chinese population now in the cities. But in reality, it's at least 50%. If you check where they are on a certain day, where they make a living, so to speak. So, th but there are many dimensions of this, um, this exposure to risk. But I, I can't get into it further. If you look at um, gender, some respects, China is not that bad. For example, if you look at the um, Human Development Index, gender adjusted. Uh, access to education for women is is, uh, is is fairly good, and life expectancy, of course, for women is um, is um, seventy three point five or so. 
The worst, I think, most shocking circumstance when it comes to gender is, of course, the fact that you have 120 boys born by 100, by 100 girls. You have such an enormous uh, number uh, of abortions. It's not legal, but it's happening all the time. And, and people use ultrasound, and uh, they want a boy, and if the first... Uh, uh, child is a go girl, it can be 140, such 140 boys per 100 girls. So, you know, Amatu Sen, the Nobel Prize winner, has written about this more than 100 million wi missing women, especially in China and, and India. And of course, China is getting a very skewed population pyramid, even though some people think that the one child policy means just that one child per, per family. But how many uh, children are, are born per, per woman <coughs> in China? 1.7. So the strict one-child policy is, is an urban policy. And it's very common in rural China to have more than one. There are punishments as well. But it, if the first child is a daughter, you may have a second and so forth. And it also varies. The, some, some local governments are very tough, and they want you to pay, and others are, are more flexible. <coughs> the, um, I mentioned in passing these ma mass incidents, uh, 87,000 in 2005. Because that, that illustrates something, it means 250 a day. The first problem is that we don't know, there is no definition. I've asked John many times and other scholars, and some people say yes, uh, 100 persons must be involved. But that's not really true. Some people also it's talk about mass incident and disturbance of public order as, as identical. But these are, they, are not, they are not identical. Uh, the most common um, the common, most common reason why you have such an incident is, is land. Peasants evicted from land or they, are, they have to leave their land and they get very lousy compensation and they see that this is not fair and they protest. And, uh, that's, uh, and that's also uh, in the cities you are evicted because they're going to pull down the building on the, and they are cadres who, uh, whose uh, behavior and, and corrupt behavior is, is causing this and they're also environmental. The, the biggest uh, demonstrations in China uh, are due to environmental uh, problems, like a dam being built. I mentioned uh, uh, in the beginning that I thought that climate change uh, is, if I, is, uh, I think the, the, the serious, most serious long-term problem that China is facing, and of course water scarcity in, in northern China might be the serious most problem. What is what is special about China is that. Um, you have three phenomena happening simultaneously. One is uh, an economy growing very fast, and it's 70% it's of the, the generation of electricity is based on coal. Last year, China mined 2.4 billion tons of coal. Just imagine if, you, if somebody dumped it outside your door here. Um, 2.4 billion tons. And uh, it's going to be 4 billion for, before too long, because they don't see any alternative and economies of these cement factories and aluminum factories and steel and so forth, they demand a lot of energy. The other one is uh, the fact that you get seven, eight million new cars, vehicles a year. The third one is urbanization. Uh, people use three times as much uh, energy in a city as they do, do in, in, in rural China. So this effect, com combined effect, is, is creating a very serious, I think, a very serious situation. And of course, uh, the, the next Kyoto Protocol that has to be ready by 2012 must include China. And India, India is also a cold base, even though not as badly as, as, as China. And of course, it depends very much on the US, actually, because China would never participate without a full US contribution uh, uh, to, 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 to the whole effort. 
Hopefully, it will, something will happen in the meantime now. Uh, last June, China presented its first study on global change. And it was a report telling a very serious story. So it's not only a problem somewhere else, it's a problem that Chinese recognizes their problem. Melting glaciers, agricultural land being lost due to, 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 to land with soil getting desert-like and so forth. Um, so it was an interesting report, very interesting when it comes to the present situation, much worse when it comes to the future, but not very clear on, on solutions yet. But the first ever report. As China is modernizing, uh, it, it, they say themselves that this modernization assumes a, a stable and growing, uh, growing global economy. The, and they say that we have an historic opportunity in China between now and 2020 to achieve this uh, modernization, Chao Kang, this first step of this modernization. And I think that that is uh, the way they see it in Beijing, as you know, they talk about peaceful rise and so forth, different peaceful development and other concepts. One part of course is a hunger for natural resources and oil. And, uh, with, and if you look at the increase in demand, I think last year China represented 70% of the increase. Of course China is still second to the US when it comes to uh, what they buy on the world market. But they are in a long term way investing. You have seen them invested in Sudan and Angola and so forth, and they have not been very concerned about anything but, uh, but ensuring uh, all supply. And now they are facing a, I come back to that, a complicated situation. Um, still, their import is not so, as you, maybe you might think that they buy all the oil in, in, in the whole of Africa. It's the, they, that's, that's not true, but 30% of the oil that import comes from, from Africa, and particularly from Angola, Sudan, and, and a few more countries. Of course, China is bound by any measure to become a superpower. It's inconceivable that, they, that in, unless the whole thing collapses. But it will also be a superpower deeply integrated into the world economy, as I said, but, and with strong national interest and great international influence. I think you will see the China influence grow in many respects. And, and what that means 15 years from now is a very uh, interesting question. Um, one uh, scholar who is more in the, of the neocon school, he said that not even the Chinese themselves know how they be, be, will behave 20 years far from now as a superpower. So then you come into this question of hedging and so forth. But China 20 years from now will, will be much more integrated into to a much more integrated global economy than, than today. Of course, China will never give up its claim to Taiwan or Tibet or Xinjiang or its claim to claim they have when it comes to the South China Sea, the Spratly. Um, but, but I don't wouldn't uh, I don't think it's fair to call China an expansionist power beyond that in in, a, in the in the traditional sense that there will be expansionists through their enormous demands and interests and influence, <coughs> and that is huge in itself. One question that is raised, of course, you remember it was Sullish a few years ago who coined the phrase that China should become a responsible stakeholder, international stakeholder. Actually, that you find that uh, concept in, in, in the Chinese literature dating back further. It not, was not invented by him, but it, it became very well uh, noticed. And, and China did not protest. The question is, that is China then becoming such a responsible stakeholder? If, if you look at a few cases, I think it's interesting. Uh, then to generalize is, is much more difficult. But if you take uh, 
North Korea. China, some four years ago, off offered its services as a convener of a conference, a six party talks. They didn't have a notion very much down the road what, what it would mean, actually. But they become a broker. And they, for the first time, I think they have become a broker in a major international conflict. And I think that they're doing quite well. Including they have, they have had to deal with North Korea in a way which I didn't expect to. And they were very shocked when North Korea tested nuclear weapon, uh, a nuclear weapon last, last, last summer. Sudan is, a, is an illustration of China as its worst, in a sense. Yes, they were there, they invested heavily in infrastructure and to get uh, oil out of Sudan. They didn't, were not particularly concerned about Darfur and so forth. Then when the president went there in January, Hu Yintao, the whole world press covered it and said that should a country like this be allowed to organize the Olympics and so forth, and Bono and uh, Mia Farrow and others uh, uh, voiced such ideas. So what did they do? Of course, they were on the defensive, but they also adjusted their policy on four or five scores, I would say. They pointed on special envoy, they provided humanitarian assistance, they are sending 170, I think, engineering troops to prepare for the UN uh, mission that is arriving, the combined African Union UN mission. They are supporting the Annan uh, plan, and so forth. So, um, and the reason is that China does not want to be an outcast kind of nice, outlier. But, but, but unexposed, they, they behave uh, like they did in Sudan. The same can be say, said about Burma. Deep interest, deep uh, exploitation of Burma, a uh, lot of migration into northern Burma, a pipeline is being built which is of great importance. But they don't think the generals are, uh, is that, that that's the greatest government on earth. On the contrary, they want to have a stable, efficient government can, that can develop Burma. They, don't, they, they don't, are not interested in good governance in our sense, human rights. But they want a government that ca can keep peace in the country so that the pipeline can be built and oil can flow for, for decades to come because it costs billions of dollars to build a pipeline. Again, when this, uh, when this development occurred a few months ago, they were again exposed. And I think that in a number of ways they, they, they did not cause, um, they, they are very much against uh, sanctions generally as a matter of policy and, and in interference generally, not least interference in their own country, uh, but still. A few things happen in that sense as well. And you can say the same about Iran. I'm not going into that now, but you can say that many people say that they will never, never do anything that would hurt Iran because of their interest in Iran. But they allowed the issue to, to be handled in Vienna and then in New York and the Security Council. So it, they, are <coughs> they can be influenced. Uh, of course, the, the deepest, the most important uh, relationship that China has is with, with the US government. There is no relationship that can be compared to that. And in the, at the present stage, China is very, wants, wants to manage it very well, not, not provoke unnecessarily. And they want to build trust to, this, to the extent they can. But there is, a, there is a power shift occurring, cannot be denied. So you, you can also see the language of the Bush administration that talked at the beginning about a strategic competitor, then about strategic partner. But you have both be bound to be like that. And I, okay, we can only deeply hope that they will be able to, uh, to, to maintain a constructive relationship over time, as, as China is rising, because China is rising. What about political reforms? Well, many people are saying nothing has happened in China since 78 when it comes to political reform, because it's still, a, still a, an autocratic country. I think that is too simple. You have to be willing to look at it more and more thoroughly, and not, ask, not, not only ask our 
uh, our uh, mo most important question, namely democracy or not democracy. When the f that answer is that's no, China is not a democracy, of course. It's a one-party state, it's a party state. But is then China exactly the way it used to be is it, uh, during Mao or the Cultural Revolution or uh, uh, 25 years ago? It's not. So then you have to sort of uh, look into this, um, what some people call the black box. Uh, and there is more and more, I think, interest among political scientists. Uh, um, and I shall to talk to Dean uh, Oy this morning and Andy about this. Uh, uh, what, to what extent, which are the components, what is happening in China that can be considered to be of significance from the point of view of political reform? There are certain. Uh, if you. <coughs> um, it's clear that uh, they undertake political reform with the purpose of maintaining the one party system. <coughs> not to dismantle it. That has to be said. But still, China today is very different from the pro-reform China. I, if I were an individual, there are many things I can do which I couldn't do then. Of course, I can have more money, which is nice. I can buy a flat if I, there's a big market for flats. I can travel in the country. I can have a passport and go abroad. I can look for a new job. I can, I can I can decide not to care at all about any political meetings. I, the party is not in my hair. Uh, I can, uh, there is a, there, when it comes to consumption, there are all these choices, including uh, when it comes to media, in a constrained way, but still. So in, in many ways, you, I can marry someone without the, the, my, the, the party or my workplace having to do it's just a contract between me and this other person. So I think you can make a decent uh, list, which, which is uh, not unimportant. But then, what, 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 which are the main features when it comes to reform as described by the government, by the party, after the 17th Party Congress? I, I, I picked up certain, I mean, you, you know, it's a two and a half long, hour long speech, and most things are said many times. The word democracy is used more than 60 times uh, in different combinations, like uh, socialist democracy and so forth. Um, but one thing that they want to achieve is what they call consultative democracy. It has nothing to do with elections. But it has to do, for example, uh, two years ago they, they were going to increase the amount that you could earn without paying tax. So they had a hearing in the People's Congress. Should it be 1,500, should it be 1,800, should it be 2,000? There was a hearing and some kind of interaction of that kind, which you may call consultative. <coughs> And I think that they, they want to have more of that in different forms when the major law is being passed and so forth. Um, within everything conducted by the, by, the, by the Communist Party, they also, have, they also put strong stress on legal development. Uh, within the system, they will not receive what you call rule of law, because that requires a number of things which do not exist, like freedom of press, independence of judiciary, um, and um, the integrity of, of the whole court system. Uh, the, the parties present in every court and, and can in, in, intervene whenever they feel like. But still, if you think of the situation after the Cultural Revolution, uh, there were maybe 500 lawyers I have learned in the whole of China, and they were all state lawyers. They were there to help convict, uh, not defend a client. Today you have 130,000 lawyers, is that something roughly? Mostly in civil cases, and uh, their the integrity is not immense and they are not uninclined to bribe uh, the judge, and so forth. And there is a lot of stuff like that. But I think that something is happening. And the stress that they put on rule uh, of law, the government is saying the country should be ruled uh, by law, just ruled by law. I think uh, 
you can see a very interesting development today in China, which, which, uh, which is called rights-based uh, protest, right consciousness. There are a number of, of, of words like that. But what is interesting is that you have people, groups like farmers, saying, we demand uh, to be, be treated according to the law. They don't say, down with the Communist Party. They only say, the law, please. Or they quote the Communist Party, and they don't, make, they don't, they don't use violence. They, they, uh, and this is a uh, rights-based protest. Uh, uh, and and uh, I think it's a very interesting phenomenon. Probably the most important phenomenon happening from underneath in China right now. And, the, and for the party, it's a big dilemma, because they have said that that should be law, and law should prevail. And they are just saying that they want that to happen. Um, <coughs> so there are developments, both from, from, be from above and from below. Um, what about human rights? Well, human rights are, was written into the Constitution in 2004, uh, one sentence, human rights should be respected in China. Um, and the government court meant that this was a very major thing in itself. We had we've insisted on it for many years from the international community. In itself, because it doesn't matter that it hasn't made a big difference. You cannot claim that. Um, and the, the, our biggest concern now is that China should ratify the International Convention on Civil and Political Rights, which they signed in 1998, but they haven't ratified it since. And the reason why they don't ratify it yet, haven't done yet, is that there are certain they, they, they need to make reservations. And how many should I do? One of the more complicated ones is on uh, re-education through labor. There are at least a few hundred people in China being detained without trial. They just a decision by the police. For three, three years, it could also be extended beyond three years. The number can be, can be quite a bit higher, probably, but, but at least a few hundred thousand. And they are looking, they're working on a law. There is a draft law, I gather, but uh, not more than a draft law. Of course, some of the most fundamental things when it comes to human rights is freedom of expression and freedom of association. And you, you don't have freedom of expression or freedom of association in China. Still, still you have an, some kind of, of nascent or emerging civil society. If you look at government data, you have more than 300,000 gongos, government-controlled NGOs. Some of them are quite interesting. Uh, like in the field of the environment, they are a bit vocal and, and they play a role. Uh, they publish things, they are on the web and so forth. I, well, one that I used to be in touch with a lot was called Institute of Contemporary Observations. <laughs> it was an organization in uh, Shenzhen who worked on migrant workers. Did a wonderful work. And he was all the time f strictly focusing on, on legal specific issues. This, uh, the person who created it. And they even formed some labor associations. And then the, the labor union said, you have no right to do that. Only we can form uh, labor uh, uh, unions. And he said, tell me, can you tell me the law saying that workers are not allowed to form an association? And they are still there. They are still in business. So I think that's interesting. When it comes to media, of course, the situation is you have seen an explosion. If you want to have a fashion or um, uh, you know glossy things or golf or food and how to decorate your new apartment uh, it's endless but 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 when it comes to the the uh, the essence of, of a free media debate questioning things you you don't find it uh, when it, uh, you find criticism of corruption and, and, uh, and you can find 
asking about uh, migrant workers and so forth at the local level, but you cannot have systemic. Even though there are, before the Congress, there were some articles uh, urging China to move f further on, on uh, when it comes to democracy. So, but basically, it's a, and ultimately, it's, it's a central system, but much more complex than it, than it used to be. Um, death penalty is a big issue, in, in, uh, especially in, in, uh, within the EU, because we are against the death penalty. We think that China should do away with it. And they, they are not prepared to do that, uh, even though they say that ultimately they will do so. But of course, the, 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 most of the death sentences passed in the world are passed in China. Um, I used to, if you looked at amnesty, because I only record what I know, exactly the name of the person that was sentenced to death. It's a couple of thousand, not more. But if you ask people how, what, what the likely number is, it would be between 8,000 and more. John is the expert again. I, I used to say that I was a member of parliament in China, I said 12,000 once. But, I said, um, but what is a fact is that in recent years there have been some developments in the right direction. One is that the Supreme Court now has to review every death sentence. This is uh, essential. And also, many death sentences are passed, uh, but they are not. But the execution is, is not taking place. Uh, there is a reprieve, and many of them are never executed. Uh, when Huin Tao was in Sweden uh, last June, our prime minister asked him about this question, and he answered very friendly in a very friendly manner that that we want to sentence to death because we want to show that this crime is absolutely unacceptable. But then we we, we used reprieve more more often than in the past, and now. With the Olympic coming up, I think uh, reprieves are more common. Is that so? For Apparently, for the first time, death with two-year reprieve exceeds the number of executions. Yes, yes. They, so. Did you hear that? That uh, there are more uh, reprieves than there are actual executions this year. But uh, China is very concerned about certain things when it comes to the Olympics. One is death penalty. Another one is Sudan, and there are a few other scenes like that. I already mentioned arbitrary detentions. It's, uh, it's completely, it's an it's a instrument as there is no uh, legal security whatsoever. You have no chance, almost, uh, there is a tiny chance that you, you can appeal, but it's very limited. It's, it's just arbitrary. Well, what then about, about uh, where is then China heading? Because the, the 17th Party Congress gave uh, some answers that reform will continue on the economic front, that, uh, that uh, the, the government won't, will consolidate the one-party state by trying to adapt uh, it uh, in a number of ways. We also saw some new leaders emerge, those who will take over in five years' time if everything goes according uh, to the, what is on the drawing board. Uh, Xi Jinping and Li Keqiang, the fifth generation of leaders. And I am a little bit proud that I have met both of them because we made a little study in the embassy a few years ago, who are the future leaders? And we made a short list, and I decided to go and visit them. So, uh, so I went to see Li Keqiang uh, in, in Shenyang, and, and, and I also saw Li, Li, Li Jinping uh, down in Zhejiang at the time. Um, and of course, uh, you have read about the know we had a seminar here yesterday. I was happy to attend that. But um, obviously, two very well-educated uh, men in their 50s, um, uh, um, they both have law, they both have PhD degrees, but I think they are not really very, very real. But they have both they are both well educated. Li Keqiang was an excellent uh, law student at uh, Beida, 
uh, and Xi Jinping studied engineering really, but that then I took uh, PhDs later, more while they were working. But uh, um, they have uh, there are interesting differences between the two also. One that has occurred to me that uh, Xi Jinping was the one who got the job that would make him the next party secretary. And uh, Li Keqiang, the prime minister in due time, if this, if this is true. Uh, both, are, to me, are sort of, I, I have a strong sense of, 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 uh, of uh, technocrats, who, who will, uh, party technocrats, who, are, who wants to pursue the modernization of China and adjust uh, uh, according to the times, so to speak. Um, Xi Jinping, for a number of years, been active in Chaoyang province, known for its entrepreneurial spirit and links to the outside world, also in Fujian. And I, I had a strong sense that he's very interested in, in such matters, entrepreneurship, private enterprise, global issues. Actually, both of them have been to Sweden, and both have very great interest in the social democratic experiences. Uh, when I tried to uh, pursue such a discussion with uh, Li Keqiang, uh, together with my Nordic uh, colleagues, he was very cautious, knowing that he was selected for the, new, for the job, because he was obviously Huin Tao's candidate. But so he said, my job is to reform state enterprises up here you know, in, in the Northeast and get to get foreign investment. When I asked him about issues beyond that, I never managed to, to, uh, to make him say anything that was quotable. But um, I think two very capable, impressive uh, persons of, of the right age, uh, who you will, you will see a lot about in the future. To conclude, um, I think most uh, experts think that China's economic development will continue. There can be real, real uh, difficult time, and they are extremely worried about a long recession. Recession in that case means below, below 4% a year for more than three years. Then the shit will hit the fan to speak. People will not, the migrant workers will go, have to go home. Uh, the banks will not, the, the loans will not be serviced. There will be, there will be bankruptcies, revenue will fall. There is a, such a circle. But it also means that the government is very keen to know how to avoid it. What do we have to do with the banking system? The banking system is much better shaped today than some years ago. The stock market is the, the most vulnerable part today. It's extremely overvalued. And it's not really a stock market in the, in the proper sense. Um, I think it's, it's axiomatic that the CCP want to continue leading China and deliver Chao Kang in the year 2020. But society, in the meantime, will be much more pluralistic, educated, internet-based, richer, and also integrated into the global community. Such society will be hard to suppress. You cannot rule it by, by just suppressing it more as the activities go goes livelier. You have to be more responsive. You have to find a way of, of interacting. <clears throat> what is certain is, of course, that the China, or if you take 2020, it's just a bit absurd just to try to say anything about it. But I, I, as an amateur, I can do everything. Um, China will be very different from now, but hardly a democracy. If, if, but in the sense that we, that that's only if the, there would be a crisis that would be very deep. But that you, you will have things with Chinese characteristics. Um, and in the sense of having a system uh, that has been able to, to, um, 
to uh, allow for um, uh, more happening in civil society, more uh, the legal development system will be better. So they, they would like to try to maintain, and they might, might even, I think they're very interested in countries like Singapore, where you have a what is called illiberal democracy, where you can never lose the election. It's, you arrange election, but they can not be lost. <coughs> what I think is um, a very big dilemma for the party is that while the party is leading a major reform, they cannot be denied if you look at what have happened in China since 1978. Uh, the party, the government, is also a victim of change. Because what is happening to China is something much more than the reform that they are undertaking. The whole society is being transformed. So that's why some scholars say that this is an, the fragile superpower. They are both very proud and, and uh, assertive, but they are also boring. How are we going to manage to cope? What is sort of down the road? What, what will the, what will the sixth generation of leaders do about all this? I think as, so for someone uh, uh, not being Chinese, but from Sweden or the US, or uh, well, the, the, the recipe is to engage China. You cannot, you cannot uh, isolate China. You have to engage on many frontiers. Academics, for example, uh, and civil society, governments, business, uh, tourism. And to engage is to support transition. You, you cannot transform China, but you can contribute to the transformation of China through, to, to, through engagement. And I think that is uh, the only realistic uh, recipe that I know. Thank you very much. The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.